he is a gentleman, a swift and nimble foe. His flesh is rare and tender, as East London men do know. He does a deal of swimming to the Saragossa say. But every year he will appear in the waters of Loch Ness. Eels can do things that they just can't explain. For instance, now, have you, have you, have you got an eel between your two fingers? It'll, it'll suspend itself for that, for a, a certain period of time, you know, and hang, it, hang itself on there. And then for some reason or other, it'll take a notion of going right up through your fingers. And I suppose the only way you could explain, I could explain to you, is a process of, of expansion and contraction. It seems to, it seems to be a contract the part it wants to go through and expand the piece it does get through. And uh, I, I don't think that there's any other fish that I know that has the queer habits that the eel has got. It, 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 all, it always comes up with something that you have never met met up with before. Now, I have been 30 years at the river and uh, with... Uh, regard to the catching of the eel there now. There's always something that will do. Something happens at the season that hasn't happened in the pre- any of the previous seasons before. And uh, when you've been in the, in the tanks, as I've been in the tanks, you know, repairing them for to keep them in, it's interesting to see them getting poked through a small hole and it'll, it'll keep revolving and at the same time expanding, contracting themselves to the work out through a hole that, honestly, you could not believe that that particular size of an eel could get through that hole. And I don't think, as I said before, that there's any fish, you know, that you could talk so much about. You need to be living with them. Well, I started fishing at the age of 15 with my father. And uh, at that time, there was nothing, only sailboats. 18 feet long, them boats was. And the main fishing at that time, the winter fishing was pulling, and the summer fishing was eels. But there was a patrol on the loch at that time, a very hefty patrol, three or four large boats, and they came up and they lifted the fishermen's lines as soon as they sat them, if they could recover them. But all down the years from 1932, the fishermen kept up the struggle. They lost their lines and they made all their lines, kept up the, the good work, as I would call it, until... 1963. In 1963, we formed what you call the Lochney Fishermen's Association. And uh, we got organised for the first and only time. And from that onwards till the cooperative bought Lochney, everything was going the right way. And now we have the Loch ourselves, own Lochney, and Loch Beg, and the barn. That comprises the whole river barn that runs to the sea, 35 or 36 miles, and the, the silver eels that they're in. The saga of the fishermen's struggle to maintain a right to fish on Loch Ney is as interesting as the story of the eel itself. It goes back to the days of Sir Arthur Chichester, the robber baron who, in 1604, contrived to have himself appointed Admiral and Commander-in-Chief of Loch Ney for the disposal of all shipping and boats thereon, and the fishing of the said loch as far as the salmon leap on the river of the Ban. This was the same Chichester who boasted of having burned all along the loch within four miles of Dungannon 
and killed 100 people, sparing none of what quality, age or sex soever, besides many burned to death. Tim Healy wrote a huge volume called Stolen Waters, about the Chichesters and their skill in the mystery of annexing broad acres by sealed sheepskin. But perhaps the most remarkable thing about their pillage and fraud was that they continued to affect fishermen's livelihood down to a mere six years ago, when control of fishing in Loch Ney reverted to the people. Come all ye Irish fishermen that love to see fair play And hear the news that's troubling the waters of Loch King Charlie Long is dead and gone But I wished he'd shut his beak Since he made a royal pronouncement to stop fishing on the lake But yet there never lived a king who could write a royal decree That would hand a fisher's living to a limited company If you ask them round Coal Island or across in Achale, they'll tell of generations of fishers on Loch Ney. Oh, the seal he has provided since times of long ago. For many's the decent fisher from Ballanderry or Arbo. Till up there came this company, and savagely they swore that they would keep the boats of nay all grounded on the shore. So we cook this company to court, though the fisher's case was wrecked. Sure, the Queen appoints the judges, so what could you expect? So the fishermen went home to Ney, determined not to crawl. And the swore, despite the lawyers, their own waters still they trawl. In the 60s, uh, there was another company came over, a consortium I would call them, from... Uh, Bellingsgate, comprised of Dutch, Danes and uh, English. And they bought the loch from the old fishing company that was run by Captain Alice. They bought the loch. There was five shareholders in the company, Salomonson, Yed, Brammer and Kitten, and uh, another company, I'm just not sure what the other company was. However, the struggle had it up in the 60s. And they were over tough tough men from the London docks that advertised in the London papers for men that would act tough and be tough. And actually actually push the fishermen completely off the loch. Their intention was to bring in large trawlers and throw the eels for themselves. There was no call, no livelihood for any other fishermen. Their pretense was they pretended that they were going to give us good terms but we didn't trust them. Anyhow the struggle went on hard and fast. Uh, I had a brother and uh, he lost his boot, the sunken boot, rammed his boot and sunk it onto him. And uh, I'd say that was nearly the beginning of the end for them because 
the fishermen, well, they got up. They didn't get up on arms, but they got up together in a body. And they said, no more of it. They wouldn't take no more of it. So they sold it. They sold the law to the Cooperative Hotel, the Lochmere Fishermen's Association. The time my brother's boat was rammed and sunk in the 60s by Captain Barry and Dave Chappell, them was the two boys that came from London to do the work for the company. And they had what you call hydrofoils and catamarans. And, they did, and even a spotter plane, but anyhow they rammed the brother's boat this day and sunk them. And they saved him, they pulled him in, but Barry produced a gun and he says, Coney, he says, no trickery. Well, it was a nasty action to a drowning man. So I decided that I'd make this little ballad. And the title of it was The Lochney Private Navy. It goes something like this. From Antrim being proudly, sails the ships of the private navy. There were hydrophiles and catamarans, and their skipper was called Davy. He fi ho on a course's set, he fi ho on a Dutch trawl net, he fi ho and we'll get one yet, and then we'll clack the bounty. Off the blackguard sails with a rendezvous, where they arrived by ones and twos. God help the boys who won't pay them. Their Jews to the Lochney Private Navy. He fi ho on a course is set. He fi ho on a Dutch trawl net. He fi ho and we'll get one yet, and then we'll collect the bounty. A renegade fisherman known as Ned got up on deck and these words he said, I've been better off fishing by dairy lone head and joining this private navy. He fi ho on a course is set. He fi ho on a Dutch trawl net. He fi ho and we'll get one yet and then we'll collect the bounty. A shout went up from the motley crew as the roster spotter at hove in view. These fishermen now we'll soon subdue by the force of our private navy. He fi ho on a course is set. He fi ho on a Dutch trawl net. He fi ho and we'll get one yet and then we'll collect the bounty. But they hadn't reckoned with Slochney for a stiff sou'west blew up that day. And it drove them back to Antrim Bay and it nearly well wrecked their navy. A lot of the, the fishing you did then, of course, was illegal, wasn't it? It was, was regarded as, as, as illegal anyhow. It was regarded as illegal as far as the old company was concerned. But it was still the, the natives, what we call the natives, the fishermen that lived closest to the Loch Shore that was at it. And it was hard to understand why... A Dutch company could come in and force a man from his own, from his own livelihood, from the shoreland. Uh, there was many a man, there's a there's a many a man already his family, and there's many a night though there was no flour in the house over the head of some of them. And it's a good job now that the times has changed. That is the fisherman's reaping the benefit, not some big Dutch Rolls Royce driver. <laughs> from Roskine Point to Cranfield Well. From Old Cross to Glenavy, the youth'll have heard their parents tell from the deeds of the private navy. He fi ho on a course is set, he fi ho on a Dutch trawl net, he fi ho and we'll get one yet, and then we'll drink the bounty. The bounty was a £21 of money award till them fellas for every trawl net they got. That's our book going down now.
fisherman's patrol boat. Oh, is that it? That's yeah. That's it there. Yeah. That's their own patrol. Does it go at regular times? Yes, that's three of them boats. Fast boats. That boat goes down. Well, that's, that's a big change now from the old well, days yeah, when, uh, the, what was it, the two meal fishes? The two meal fishes boats was there till, 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 uh, to book the fishermen, take their names for every individual, small offence, small hooks, worms, bits, small mice, everything. You couldn't have kept to the law. But that's our own boats now, and all they have to do is watch a few little wrongdoings, you know, and keep the thing right. The men and they, they worked away as they fished throughout the years. Till the company advertised for a band of buccaneers. In the journals of Britannia, they offered gold to pay. And a bunch of mercenaries came for patrolling on Loch I pretty still is Ballandary and likewise Achali. Ram's Island yet adorns the waves of Ireland's inland sea. Though high-speed craft of piracy torment the folk around, Ballyronan and Glenavy men are stubborn men to drown. The company may trace its right since Charlie Stewart's reign. And the waters nicely gallon they can claim as their domain. But till the day the ban runs dry, there's men will fish for eel. And they'll guard the right to trawl at night by the law of the O'Neill. The civil rights campaign in the north played a large part in winning Loch Neagh for the fishermen. The People's Democracy in particular was active with protest marches, sit-ins, pickets, a radio-free Loch Neagh and a pamphlet, The Great Eel Robbery, written by Michael Farrell. There had been numerous court cases through the years, one in 1908 going to the British House of Lords, which decided by one vote that the Earls of Shaftesbury had the exclusive fishing rights on Loch Neagh. Sixty years later, the local fishermen were still disputing such claims. In 1969, three of them were sent to jail. One was heavily fined and 20 lost their licences in what was to be the final phase of the battle when the old Tomb Eel Fisheries Company handed over to the Loch Fishermen's Cooperative in 1972. Today, the self-perpetuating propensities of the Chichesters and the Shaftesburys are of less concern to the fishermen than the life cycle of the eel with which their own lives are so closely linked. Well, the Loch Neal is a very curious creature. They hibernate in the winter. And the springtime of the year, they rise from the, from the bed of the loch and they start to feed. And uh, in the autumn, the eel turns silver and they make for the sea. Once the wind comes south in the autumn and the moon's at the strike, this eel turn silver and they make for the sea that's it, the female eel they go down the barn, some of them trapped in the cockle nets at tomb and some of them trapped at uh, down near Coleraine at Kilray and uh, some of them get away they make their way to the Saragossa Sea and they spawn in the depths of the Saragossa Sea and that female eel scientists say dies after it spawns but 
the young thrive on the Saragossa and the woods to return to where their parents came from, get on them, and they travelled by the Gulf Stream all the way to the mouth of the Freshwater River in the British Isles and in Europe. And them young Alvars comes to the mouth of the Barn River at Kilray, and the straw ropes, straw ropes led down, twisted, and led down into the water, and them small Alvar eels crawled into the straw ropes. Them straw ropes were lifted up and shaked into boxes or crates, Little elvers is weighed, they're not counted because they're so small you couldn't count them. And uh, they're conveyed up to various parts in the loch and they're put in around the various parts, put into the waters of the loch. And it's believed to be it takes eight or nine or ten years to bring the eel to maturity. Into, to be a, in other words, to, to be a saleable eel. Neil Coney of Arbeau in County Tyrone. The placing of straw ropes in the river band to help the young eel or elver up the river is only one of the more interesting aspects of the Ban Loch fishing. The catching of the elvers is a comparatively recent innovation. The first attempt to trap them and transport them upstream was made to avoid dredging sites in 1932. The straw ropes are placed on a slight gradient on one side of the river near the salmon weir at Coleraine. On the footbridge above them, we spoke to Frank Lloyd, the caretaker, who is employed by the Northern Ireland Department of Agriculture. The elvers come up on the, the tides and they come into the straw ropes and there's fresh water going from the top side of the river down and down the straw ropes attracting the elvers up the ropes and they drop into a tank and then we fish them every day Well now we'd tra- better describe these straw ropes they're, they're on a sort of a slope here yeah, in, yes, in front yes, of us now yes. and uh, the water is flowing in from the top from part. the top naturally enough yes. and uh, it comes through the straw ropes and we can see them down there yes, in front right, of us, yes. very small, just like little worms. They are, yes. And they have come all the way now from the Saragossa that, Sea. That's correct. And then they are spawned on the seabed, and at different stages they come to the surface. And then the Gulf Stream distributes them out to other, pla- other places, and then they make their way up then, you see. And even though they're very small, they're, they're four years old or so? They're four years old, yes. And a lot of them would be lost, in fact, at this stage, if you hadn't this rope they would, yes, to help yes. them. They would, yes. They wouldn't be able to get up at all, you see, for the floodgates and that's there. And then it's a fresh water attracts them into the straw ropes. And they come underneath a chute, as you see, and drop into the tank of water then, which keeps them living. Uh, they're actually going against the flow of the water. No, no aren't they? This at, water? at the moment, yes, they are. Yes. See, because they're coming... There's very few now, like, but they're coming up through the top of the chute and coming up the chute. They should go underneath the chute. Oh, that's where they're intended to go. That's where they're intended to go, yes. And then they drop into the tank of water then. And then they make their way up under where we're standing now. And And then, see, we we fish them out of that tank. And you see the holes in the, the chute? Yes. There's four holes. Well, that's letting water into the tank. And then there's overflow there, you see, that gauze at the right that's letting the water out of the tank there you see so that's giving plenty of oxygen in the water to keep them living in the tank the little thread like elvers whether transported from Coleraine in tanks or travelling upstream by their own devices eventually reach Loch Ney in millions left to the natural process which would mean 18 months on the ban many of them would probably be lost 
but there's no doubt about the instinct and sense of urgency which drives them on. Jim Donaghy of Portnell. For instance, the tiny elva there, you know, uh, you've, you've uh, saw the, the, the ropes where they store ropes and they go up, well, you can see them crawling through those ropes. And it's just like they, little worms. Like little worms. And as soon as they get out to the feet of the water, they're away like a flash. You know, and it's the same with, with, with the... And the it's the fresh water that attracts them. At most they, they fresh water. The the they know the difference, and, the and, and for the most, I mentioned there previous about them going up to the loch. I think that the, that the eagle that gets... does the journey all the way up. It's supposed to be around about 18 miles there, or maybe 20 miles from Port now, and that'll be another 18 to cold rain to take them into the loch. And I think it's necessary. Nature must have it necessary for those eels to travel that distance. And I think even they are, some of them lost by different things. I think the, the, the better eel gets up to the loch. It's you the know, survival of the fittest. The survival of the fittest. You know, mm-hmm. I, I admit that it wouldn't be, they wouldn't be there in the same quantity, but I think the quality would still be better. You'd have still be a better type of eel. And, uh, you know, as I said before, to come back to the, the urgency, the, you know, they seem to know that they must get away. Now, yes. here's one interesting point that happened during the time at, at the Dewater, that part of the river that I've been previously talking about. We were looking for to see if they could get up, you know, what ones that did get up that way that had passed by this down at the traps and cold rain. Now, th- there was a house down there, it was a, an old hatchery, and there had been a spouting, uh, a spouting on and, and, and guttering. Well, we got them crawling up the damp spouting and, 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 and never to get up the river. The elver, which travels up the ban at any time between St Patrick's Day and early June, depending on the weather, will mature in Loch Ney after about seven years. It will then change colour and, as a silver eel returning downstream, will be at its most valuable. But even in its brown stage, there's a ready market for it, and commercially, it's the most important fish in the loch. The fisherman in the summer months works for what they call the brown eel. The brown needle is transported to the tomb down to the cooperative and sold there too. There's a limit on eel fishing. No fisherman's allowed to catch any more than eight stone of eels in any one day. There's, the ceiling is 40 stone per week, which, which sometimes we don't get. A lot of times we don't get. But uh, things are looking a lot brighter on Loch now since uh, Father Kennedy took over the cooperative of the tomb. Most of the boats fishing for the brown eel on Loch Ney now have engines, which means that they can go out in all kinds of weather, laying or taking up the long lines baited with hundreds of hooks, which are most commonly in use. But the eel, which feeds at night and moves with the dark, stormy weather, is not always predictable. The eel works in different ways. Sometimes the eel, when they're baiting on the lines, as we call it, they, you catch them in the, in the early morning. When you go out to lift your line, your eel is on the line. But... This year, apparently, for I don't know, for some apparent reason, there's very, very little eels biting on the line with a rut that the fisherman has thrown to the loch near draft net. It's a very old mode of fishing, an ancient mode of fishing, and it's, they're having fairly good, fairly, fairly good catches, reasonable. The way it is, the line fishing is getting very hard, you know, it's about 16 hours a day for line fishing. But there's men draws with an eel net, which there's it's in the barrel as it is now, and it only takes eight hours. And there's no expense with paying people to run lines or anything else. So every boat goes out, and all, all we are. Uh, everybody here has to fish for eight stone a day. 
what if you get any more, you only can put eight stone away each day to save the lock. Each man only gets eight stone. And the way you walk from here, you see, there's nobody can... You must have a licence to fish on the boat. Each boat is a number. And this river here, this beach here, is called P. P, yeah, they're P. all P10, they're all P7, P17 there. Uh, P17 and P7. Mm-hmm. Everybody is a P, but when... Don's the patrol boat under at the bottom. Oh, yeah, it's just Maybe. come in there since we started talking. In fact. No, that was in, it and was uh, in, yeah. it, he is locally from here. He is uh, he's Michael Wiley, and he patrols the log. Well, if you have a number on your boat, he knows that you shouldn't be there, so he can summon you to get off, you see. But uh, you must have your number, and each beach, each beach round the lock has its number, from P or B or C, whatever the case may be. The line fishing, uh, the whole, the whole, the main job in is you have to catch bait for your hooks, and uh, sometimes that can be difficult. Not whenever it comes into warm, dry weather, it's very difficult to get worms. And then at the same time, pung. We usually cut up pung for plug, what we call plug baits, or we use small tench. And this depends on the on the weather situation whether these these small fish are available or not. And there's a lot of the uh, expense. In preparing the line, we usually have to employ a couple of people to help us prepare the line. And nowadays you don't get very much done for nothing. Or you couldn't expect it to be done for nothing either. It takes in a day's work to set a line, to lift the line and to prepare a line. It takes about 13 hours or 14 hours per day. That's a very long day. And the other way, if you were netting age, you could net as many in about three hours as you would in a lane, you know. Then what time do you go out at? We go out at five o'clock in the morning, or sometimes four o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And you have to go out, we have set our lanes now at four, and we're going out left. And we're going out now at four o'clock. And now we're setting off now. This is, what time is it now? It's 20, 20 to eight. Mm-hmm. It's 20 and, to eight. And you won't be back till when? We'll be back about uh, in four hours' time. Four hours. That's correct. And then you have a bit of a sleep. No, no, you don't get no sleep. You, you go home and, and you get your breakfast, and then you, you reset the line again. And then you go to for about four hours, and you've been again in four hours again. And then you have to run the line. So it's uh, you walk about sixteen hours every day. And how long does the season last? The season lasts uh, approximately five months from May till October, 1st of November. Martin Taig, whom we met with three or four other young men at Kilikulpi Beach, or the Beck, on the Tyrone side of the loch. This is the beach with the largest number of boats. We saw 16 tied up there, out of a total of 170 around the shore. Martin told us about changes to be seen these days in boat construction. The fishermen's boats were always built, you know, with wood. But uh, as wood got uh, so dear, they decided that... Uh, they would take out a wooden boat and turn her upside down, which uh, uh, two fishermen from this back river done, uh, uh, Paddy McKeever and Gusson. And they took a boat off uh, Charlie Wiley's home, a uh, uh, wooden boat, and they turned her upside down and they took a mould off her, which, uh, and they have this fine boat now. They've uh, they've made three boats a year. They've made that redden and that and, and that and at the bottom. But that other favourite last boat, that's a Mulholland boat. But these Who's boats, Mulholland. Mulholland, he lives in the far side of the loch from Antrim. He he builds boats. He builds he? boats. 
now, but the whole original boats, every man that builds the boats, they must be, you must give credit to the main man, the main man that, that the mould come off is Charlie McElroy. Charlie McElroy builds... That's his there. That's Charlie McElroy, he builds all the wooden boats. Eel fishing is an expensive business involving a large amount of capital expenditure. But money alone won't make you a successful fisherman, as Liam Taig told us. The first thing that would, uh, would, would beat you would be experience. To serve your time to an eel fisherman, to serve your time to fish on Loch Nee, it would take about most of ten years. Um, first of all, <laughs> it would take uh, 2000 to buy a new boat, and that's cheap, like that's... that's what you call home manufactured and would take uh, most of 2,000 more to set you up in gear and you'd have to get a very agreeable man and a good fisherman to go with you after that Who will provide you with the cash? Uh, does the co-op provide uh, loans or anything like that? Well at the minute now they're not providing any loans because uh, at the minute there's 170 boats fishing on the law and they're trying to control the fishermen, you know. They're trying to limit the uh, the number of licenses. They they don't they don't. It's not more license than a license like, but it's a it's a sort of a permission to fish. They're trying to limit it to 150 boats per year, and at the minute it must be 170. So newcomers like doesn't be encouraged by grants running like that's understandable, you know. So and yet uh, I notice a lot of the people who are fishing now are young lads. I would say most of them are in the age group from 30 to uh, 45 or so, you know. More or less the men have their money made. What they call the hard men have their money made. <laughs> well, apparently you can actually live now by fishing, which wasn't oh always I, so. Oh, I surely you can, surely. Well, you had more loss, you had more loss that time, you see, because you were fishing with the... Uh, the ordinary line and on most occasions or two thirds of the time anyway the bailiffs maybe lifted your line and line fishing that time was all cotton and even you didn't lose your line you must replace it every month because the cotton perished in the water there was no means of uh, preserving it and any means that was was available for preserving it usually hindered you from fishing so we always used once the, once the nylon fishing took over it's a different story, you know. Everything around the Loch Shore is geared for speed, towards getting the catch from Blackers Rock to Billingsgate, from Arbo to Amsterdam, in the shortest possible time. It goes by a small lorry down to the head co-op at Tim, and they control all the eels of the Loch. And they're brought in, they're, caught, they're, they're collected at individual collecting points right around the Loch. I would say there's about ten collecting points in all. And within 10 hours, them eels are on the continental market. They're packed at Tim by about six or seven packers. They're on the airplane and they're in Amsterdam about half past 10 at night. Now, there's about 80% of the eels go to the continental market and the other 20% go to the London market. And he can exchange, he can, the, the controller, if the, if the fishery can exchange the supply of eels according to the price and according to the demand. It's very well organised in that way.
Tomb Bridge, where the lower band leaves Loch May, are the headquarters of the fishermen's co-op and the centre at which the dealers have the catch sorted and graded, under the watchful eye of Robert MacDonald. Well, that, that's them coming down the chute, you see. And the dead are picked out of them and wait here on this small waybrake. And the live brought it right down to the tank. And after that, the small ones, small ones are picked out. And they're brought down to the tank where they're picking off the afternoon. Now, it means in effect that anyone that looks a bit lifeless there is, is taken out. Ah, small ones. The small, small ones are taken out, they're graded. Yeah. And uh, the dead are picked out and left to one side. Well, the dead means anyone that's not moving, so... Yes, yes. They just, uh, yeah. And, um, you need an expert eye, just the, the same there. Yeah. And the small ones, the small ones, they are greater. And they're brought down to the tank there, and put into the tank, and now... They're just moving them along now with yeah, the board. they're moving them along with it. Yeah. And they're put into the bin, and brought down to the uh, wave bridge there, and weighed and threw into the tank for water for it to be packed in the afternoon. Well, you have lorries coming in here all the morning now? Yes, they're coming in from 11 o'clock up till uh, 4. But the packers are still going on. The live eels go to catch their plane at Aldergrove, the dead ones go to the icebox and then to the gutting house, into the expert hands of Patrick McFall and Neil Rocks. Well, it's just a matter of taking the dead eels taking them out of the cooler, ripping them open, taking out the guts, and then peeling off the skin, cutting the head and peeling off the skin. That's what you're doing now. Yes. You need, a, you need a good sharp knife for that. You need a good sharp knife for it, yeah. It doesn't take you long doing one there and cleaning them out anyhow. Not maybe sore on, not sore on the fingers too. Teams, You've lost <laughs> the end of the finger very quick. You didn't watch yourself. Have to be careful, yeah. yeah. Well, the skin comes off very easily. You may think that, yeah. It looks easy to me. You want to say the good one? Yeah, I wouldn't. <laughs> no. I wouldn't think I'd be much good at it. No, the whole thing is when you have them opened up and the guts out. You have them opened there now, anyway. Yes, and the guts out. That's a yeah, the guts out now. It's a and that's in clean. Mm-hmm. It's to it's nick the bone. A couple of scrapes along yes. the inside. Nick the bone. Oh, I see. Yeah. And be careful not to nick the skin. Because mm-hmm. if you nick the skin, you'd never get the whole, the whole on it, you know? Oh, yes, yeah. And then so you, you get, get your thumb in there and run it along. And that's it. It's just and the skin comes If you off. ever nick that skin there, you'll be left with the head hanging in your hand. And <laughs> the skin will still be on the back of the head. Oh. Like everything else, there's a knack in it. Actually, it looks perfect. <laughs> the nick and the knack, you might say. The dead eels, like the live ones, are flown out from Aldergrove, most of them to London. That's the end of the road for many of the Loch Ness brown eels but some of them go on as silver eels to face new hazards between Tombridge and the sea. Eventually, if they're lucky, starting a new life cycle in the Sargasso Sea across the Atlantic. Apart from the now ever-present pollution, which the eel seems to survive better than other fish in Loch Ney, the first big hazard is the weirded tomb, just opposite the fishermen's co-op. Neil rocks again. That's when the night fishing goes on. At a certain time of the year, the silver eel leaves the loch and heads back to the spawning ground. And there's nets on out there at a certain time of the year, and he's caught heading back to 
heading back down the barn out to the sea. There are two further places at which the silver eel may be caught, Portna and Movanaher, both near Kilray in County Derry, and both at a spot where the ban is shallow and fast-flowing. The old weirs consist of a series of wattled V's, the site of which are known as skeiths, from the Irish word skia, a wickerwork partition. These guide the eel downstream to the eyes, where the nets are set. One eye in the centre has to be non-fishing, to comply with the law which stipulates that in the interests of conservation, a gap called the Queen's Gap of at least one-tenth the width of the river has to be left. A modern self-fishery with concrete traps was completed in 1942, but as Jim Donaghy of Portnaugh Fishery told us, the old weir is still best. Yes, it is supposed to be, oh, I suppose, anything from two to 300 years old, and, and we're told that it has been designed and built by monks. And uh, That's the weir there? That's the, the weir, the wicker work, uh, the, the wooden wattles and, and wicker work thing, and it's very effective and very useful. In fact, it's, it has... Uh, outshone the, the modern methods that they had a few years back there with concrete structure and, and mm. not any good at all. It was called, <laughs> a, it was called a self-fishing. I really don't know why because, I mean, it, it does no good at all whatsoever. Yeah. Why was that? Why was the... Well, I, I think what they'd, what they'd done, you see, what we, which we must admire, the old people that that uh, invented this structure, this old structure, they underestimated the amount of dirt in the river and uh, furthermore, instead of going with nature or with the eels, they sort of tried to bring the eels with them. Uh, namely, they, they took the eels to either side of the river, and uh, the the dirt of the river banged up the, the skis or the, the, the wire netting, and of course the, the stream of the river got so low and so, so still that the eel come back up and went down through the middle gap. So the older, why I mentioned they, they have to admire the older people, they went with the eel, they, they built their weirs, six weirs right across the river. They had them six weirs conveniently spaced right across the river, whereby the eels were fit to come down, and uh, they, they had no sense of a trap or anything else they got, they just ran right into the nets. This other thing is, uh, to go back to it again, uh, the, uh, the water, as I said before, got, got uh, blocked up with the dirt, and the eels, I, I saw them myself looking on with the lamp, searching their way right back up and coming down what was with the gap that has to be left there. It's called the Queen's Gap that has to be left there below. Coming right up back and going right down through the Queen's Gap. The silver eel season lasts officially from the 1st of August until the 10th of January. And as with the brown eel, the darker and rougher the nights, the better for fishing. But silver or brown, the Loch Ness eel is most likely to end as a delicacy in some hotel or restaurant in Britain or the continent. In Ireland generally, it's only along the river or loch where it is caught that it is appreciated as food. Well, eels are classed as a sort of a novelty, what we call a novelty. Now, sometimes there are fish that you can eat once in a while, but you definitely wouldn't want to be having them every day. You wouldn't be wanting them for breakfast, dinner and tea, I'll assure you that. They're a bit rich, are they? They're a bit rich and very oily. But they, uh, out foreign, they prepare them in different ways, you know, and you wouldn't know where you were getting eels or not. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't even eat eels jellied or any other way, only fried. The brown eel is very nice, very, I think, even better than our, than our silver eel down here. But, but the, the silver eel is more expensive, isn't it? It is, more expensive. 
Is that because the Continentals like the silver one? Well, at, at a bigger eel, you see, and a better type of eel, I would think, although uh, on the way we would cook it around, I've, I've only had the, the loch men, the fishermen in the loch there at Wardford, they come down to give us a hand down here at times. Well, of course, you can't blame them probably keeping up their own end of the their own end of the, of the, of the job. They say it, they, or they have tasted our fried eel down here, and they say their eel is a better eel than we are. Do people around here eat the eel themselves at all, Jimmy? Well, I think in old times they did, you know, because uh, needless to say, food wasn't as plentiful at that time, you know, and I think that... It, no, not so much now. I, I th- you know, they're a difficult thing, a difficult fish for the for the cook properly. You know, we have a, a good way of cooking them down at, down at the cabin there, you know, an old-fashioned way, and really, with the old oven pot. And uh, it, it takes a long while to do it. It takes about an hour for to do it. We put uh, the eels in the bottom, cut them up into pieces about an inch and a half long, you know, when we skin them, put them in the bottom, and then put uh, potato onions amongst them and uh, put potatoes on the top of that again. Well, it's, it's uh, done the same as the old-fashioned roast would be. You put it on for a certain length of time, take it off, and the, the purpose in that is to, is to let the oil get down between the eel and the pot and thereby keep them from burning. And we keep off and on like that for about half an hour, and then we take them off, put coals underneath them and coals on the top, and you have a beautiful pot of eels with beautiful toasted potatoes, and it's really marvellous. Well, now, the, the frying is another art too. That That's something I must give credit to the, the tomb men, and, and I'm sure the lock men would be the same because they are really experts in frying. We are reasonably good down here, but I don't think <laughs> we can... I don't think we can come up to the to the quality they have. The eel, he is a gentleman, a swift and nimble foe. His flesh is rare and tender, as East London men do know. He does a deal of swimming to the Saragossa say. But every year he will appear in the waters of Loch Ness.